Hi, I'm Emma Clark, and this is Before the Bar Opens, the podcast about what happens before the music starts. I talk to people who make, use, and love music. Helena Leonard is an operatic soprano, an actor, and a producer. She studied at London's Trinity College of Music and the Guildhall School of Music and Drama before going on to advanced studies at the National Opera Studio. Her professional debut came with English National Opera, and she's performed with scores of opera companies, including Scottish Opera and the Edinburgh Symphony Orchestra. She's also co-artistic director of Little Pixie Productions, an award-winning theatre company run by Helena and her two sisters. I want to know how Helena discovered her voice and what she has to do to look after it. When did you discover your voice? People tell me I sang as a a very little toddler, but I can't remember that. But I remember singing sort of in the school assemblies and and etc. But it was when I actually got to the high school and we had to audition to be in the choir and I was picked out and there was only two of us in my year group that were put forward to be in the choir and it sort of went from there um, I was in the church choir at that time but that was when it sort of started for me what do you think people noticed about your voice even as a child maybe not so much as a child but as I sort of went from being 11 going into my teens a lot of people remarked on how mature my voice was and I remember I was about 15 at this point doing a concert at school and an older chappy saying oh I'd like to hear that lass in five years time (laughs) wow (laughs) so what particular qualities does your voice have that makes it made for opera it's strong powerful these are what people have said it's big in the way that it's big and beautiful as in I mean that sounds a bit um no it is what it is don't be shy I mean Helena come on you wouldn't be an opera singer if you didn't have a beautiful voice love you know what I mean (laughs) yeah I do I do Emma but um there are voices shall I say and operas that require really strong powerful voices but they're not always beautiful yes I get that yeah it has been said to me on several occasions it's big but it's beautiful and it's got an ability to carry because of course when you are an opera singer unless you're in an outdoor venue where it's a big stadium where they have mics to help when you're singing in a theatre in the auditorium you don't have a microphone and it's what you produce and hopefully if the acoustics are good that helps as well How do you make that big noise? What techniques do you use? For the sound to resonate, the sound resonates in your mouth, in your hard palate, behind your front teeth. I think, I mean, obviously everybody's different. Their faces are different shapes. You know, I've got a fairly big mouth and the area (laughs) inside... It's not huge. It's just that apparently (laughs) as a baby, when I was smiling, people said, oh, she's got a good mouth because they've got a high palate and, um, you know, I'll be able to sing, you know, be able to make a a resonate and make a sound that could fill a room. (laughs) How did you decide to be an opera singer? What was the moment? Well, I remember... In my mid-teens, I was having singing lessons. I'd had piano lessons from about the age of eight, nine. I really enjoyed my music. At that time, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So one day, I suddenly turned around to my parents and said, 
I want to be a singer. And they looked at me. And at that time, the school I was at, they didn't even have a music um, O-level or GCSE uh, syllabus. So when I went to the sixth form, I had to do music O-level in a year. And it all went from there, really. Um, so, so it was basically around the age of 15, 16, I suddenly decided that that's what I wanted to try and pursue. Was that a moment of sort of finding who you really were and just thinking, right, I've got the confidence to do this? And my God, I'm going to do it. Well, yes and no, because you mentioned the word confidence. Outwardly, as I was growing up, I didn't seem a very confident person. I was quite shy. But something strange happened when I stood. I had the nerve to actually stand on a stage or sing at school or whatever. And I sort of lost myself in the music. So I knew that's what made me feel good. And and so therefore, I decided that's what I wanted to try and pursue. Was music a sort of safe space for you when you were growing up? Was it somewhere you could, as you said, just completely lose yourself and just be transported to a different world, really? Yes, definitely. And not only me sort of singing, but me listening to music. What did you Um, like to listen to? Well, it was always classical music. My mum and dad tell me that I was bounced out of my cot to very loud classical music. And (laughs) before I could walk properly, and they had a low-level coffee table in the living room, and I used to sort of lean on that and bounce up and down in time to the music. (laughs) As I grew up, it was mainly classical. I remember many a Sunday afternoon. I mean, Sundays are so different now because society is very much 24-7. But in those days, it was church in the morning, lunch, sometimes going to my grandma's for tea but if we didn't go it'd be listening to music I mean I've got memories of listening to pastoral symphony Mozart symphonies and I can picture myself now lying on the sofa just losing myself in the music and then as I got a little bit older I was introduced to one of my favorite singers as I was growing up was Dame Janet Baker and I just used to listen to some of her records and there were records in those days of course (laughs) over and over again and then when I went to sixth form mum and I joined the Halle so we used to go and listen to the Halle Orchestra. So your whole childhood that period of growing up seems like it was full of music? It was full of music but it was also full of books it was full of I had dancing lessons it was full of creativity basically so it was part of me I'm the eldest of four children we were just encouraged to explore and be creative. Talking to Helena it felt as if her childhood and early life had been full of music I wondered how much of that influenced her as she was growing up, as she was becoming a professional musician-in-waiting. How do you look after your voice? Well, first of all, you haven't got to be too precious. I've Well, this is my humble opinion. I mean, obviously, if you've got an important concert or you're in the middle of rehearsing for something, you don't scream from the top of your voice, you don't go out to lots of parties and eat and drink the wrong things. It's about a balance. It's about trying to keep well, you know, not getting a cold, but not being too neurotic about it. What exercises do you have to do to keep it in good condition? Do you have to do exercises? Yes. I mean, obviously, the exercises are there to sort of develop and strengthen and stretch the voice, um, either to give a nice smooth legato sound or the agility. It's like with anything, the vocal cords are a muscle, so you have to keep them in check. It's like asking a dancer to get on a stage and not having warmed up or an athlete to suddenly run 100 metres without having done any stretching or whatever. It is. You just have to try and keep it in trim. <laughs> Can you give us an example? Neo-leo-u. 
sort of you do to the vowels and you do quick succession of different rhythms and you could probably spend 10-15 minutes sort of doing various vocal exercises. When I was at college the Vakai vocal exercises were put to words and then sometimes my teacher he would take famous phrases from different arias and then use them as an exercise if they had a particularly difficult interval in them or it covered a high and low range within a small amount of time. What is a difficult interval? Is it like an octave? Would that be difficult? Um, Not necessarily the octave, but sometimes it could be more. It could be the seventh, just below the octave, or a a fifth. Usually, if they're on within the chord, so you've got your dominant and then you've got the third and fifth, you can sort of hear those. I mean, some people obviously are more naturally gifted than others. They can hear it in the head. Some people are brilliant at sight reading because they can just look at a piece of music. Some people have got perfect pitch. I wouldn't say I've got perfect pitch, but I think I've got sort of relative pitch. Um, How do you prepare for a big performance? So if it was a performance with orchestra, before you even start rehearsing the actual physicality of the artistic side of things, like telling the story, you'll have spent weeks learning the music. I was always quite interested in the fact that if you're an actor and you're employed by a company to play a role in a play, you very often go not knowing the play from memory the first day you have a read through with on book and then depending how the director wants to take it you start rehearsing different segments now with the music side of things you couldn't leave that till the first day of rehearsal you have to go even if you're not 100% memory off the page you've got to know it inside out before you then can do that and then you can strip it apart and then put the acting in it So it can, depending on the size of the role and and et cetera, it can be months in advance. That's why the casting in opera is different to other things like, say, plays, because they can cast slightly in a shorter space, where with operas, there's so many elements to cast. They do tend to do their casting one, two, three seasons ahead. You might know that you're going to be singing a role and in a year's time, but you know it's going to take you six months to learn it. You've played some really big roles as well. I have played some big roles. Not that I'm doing myself down here, but I'd like to add that a lot of the big roles I've done, I've been what they call the understudy. So I've had to know, I've had to be as good as the person that's singing the role on stage and I've had to know it. And to be able to sing the role of Tosca, to be able to sing the role of Aida, for example, or Ariadne in Ariadne Avnaxus by um, Richard Strauss. And to Um, be able to go on stage at a moment's notice. Yeah, and that is the huge difficulty. I've never had, <laughs> uh, I was going to use the word luxury. I mean, it would have, it might be sheer horror. <laughs> I mean, in all the times I've understudied all these big roles, I've never had an opportunity to go on. The nearest to that is when I understudied the role of Tosca for Scottish Opera, and they were doing a series of information performances called Unwrapped, and they would use the understudies on the main stage, on the set, with the orchestra, which was a fantastic luxury, and there would be an assistant director and a staff producer, and they would talk to the audience before anything happened and explain about the set and everything. And, for example, with the Tosca, we did Act 1, and then between Act 1 and Act 2... When there was a scene change, they didn't bring the Iron Curtain in. They left it open and they explained how they transformed the set from Act 1 to Act 2. At the end of Act 2, Tosca gets to kill the evil Scarpia. So I did get to simulate that. 
Uh, but I didn't get to, and this would have been really frightening if I had to have gone on. Of course, in the end of Act 3, she jumps. I did get to rehearse the jump, but you literally, you're jumping off battlements and this is in a theatre and you're jumping into darkness, hopefully to be landing on a mattress. <laughs> oh my Lord. Yes, it was very, very frightening. And I thought, gosh, if I had to do that for real in a performance, but I did get to rehearse that a few times. Do you get the same amount of rehearsal time as an understudy or are you expected to sort of fast track yourself along the rehearsal process? Simple answer is no, you don't. You have to do a lot of the learning like most singers on their own and take it to your coach and maybe take it to your teacher. But of course, say, for example, a lot of companies have usually about a six week rehearsal period. So as an understudy, you're only brought in for about the last two weeks. When you go for the first couple of days, you might actually be asked to go and sit and listen to what they call a zitz prober. And that is when all the soloists and the choruses involved in the opera go, there's the orchestra there and it's a big rehearsal, but nobody's actually moving on stage. They're sitting and just singing the music through and then the next day they might have started their stage rehearsals by then because a lot of them the first few weeks will be in the studio and then they move to the theatre so the first few rehearsals in the theatre are with piano before they bring in the orchestra so you go and you sit in the auditorium and you have to make sure you've got a good a good torch because you're there with your score and you're scribbling notes and you're basically watching what they're doing so you might be there a few days before you actually even get a rehearsal with the other understudies and also by that time because the main singers have moved on stage by then the actual main props and set are on stage and you're having to imagine oh there's a door there there's a wall there there's a and then you go back into the theatre again and watch so by the time of say the dress rehearsal you might have walked through it all but I have known singers bless them having to sing from the side of the stage say at a dress rehearsal or even a first night when the main singer singer has gone poorly but they walk the part and the singer sings it from the side of the stage I've only had to do that in a rehearsal when I was covering Aida for Welsh National Opera in 2008 and it was the first time I'd worked for Welsh National and the poor soprano singing Aida in a rehearsal had hit her head on something so she'd gone home so for the rest of that rehearsal I had to and I'd only been there two days so I had to sing with the score on the side of the stage just so the rest of the soloists in that particular scene and chorus and the orchestra could get a feel for it It struck me that being an operatic understudy calls for almost superhuman qualities. Physical and emotional stamina, resilience, self-control, creativity and musicianship, obviously, but also an incredible memory. An understudy has to know everything about a role. The music, the lyrics, the props, the staging, the blocking, all of it. When I covered Ariadne for Welsh... It was towards the end of the run and they were in Southampton at that point. And I got a phone call the night before from the company manager to say, I'm just giving you a heads up. You might be getting a call in the morning. The soprano's not feeling too good. So I think you should pack a suitcase and be on standby to get on a train. And sure enough, I had to get on a train. And I was sitting on the train thinking, I haven't had a stage rehearsal for a few weeks because it's towards the end of the run. And I sat on the train absolutely petrified, thinking, oh, my goodness, what am I going to do? As in, I've got to, I'm singing the main role here and I've got to... You've got to make it happen. You've got to make it happen. You can't, you know, you've just got to make it happen. 
and I was met at the station, taken to wigs. They fitted my wig. They hadn't made me my own costume. Uh, oh, they had made me my own costume, but they hadn't made me my own wig because wigs are very expensive. So I've got quite a small head, actually. And they had to sort of like, oh, we can tuck this and do this and do that. Having the wrong wig, though. I mean, yeah. having a wig that doesn't fit could be a massive distraction. Oh, and you're gosh, trying to yes, sing a soprano yes. role because if you, <laughs> frankly, if you turn your head too fast and it falls off. Well, yeah, hopefully it wouldn't. But yes, it's like trying to dance in the wrong shoes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and what was funny is that I'd rehearsed with the assistant director and the assistant conductor. I'd never rehearsed with the main conductor or even with the orchestra. And then something happened that really shouldn't have happened and she shouldn't have been allowed to do this, but she's decided literally at the 11th hour that she was well enough to go on. I was slightly relieved in one respect, but then I was really quite upset and angry in the other respect because, yeah. oh, great. And oh. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> it must have been a massively deflating moment, though. Yes, it's like literally, you know, somebody bursting, you know, a balloon and think, oh, yeah. right, okay. What do you do with all that adrenaline? precisely well you don't cope with it very well so the stage manager he was really really apologetic but then it was like okay you don't have to go on you know obviously you'd want to come and see the show but for the first act you know be prepared I mean obviously in the, in the first act of Ariadne she doesn't sing very much even so you must have been on pins I was I was and then then at the interval it was like okay you more or less he didn't actually say this but it was more or less implied well you're free to go well I couldn't because I was in I'm in Southampton. I was wanted to watch the rest of it anyway. And I remember afterwards he said, oh, I'll meet you across the road in the bar. And he came and he came with this huge bunch of flowers and chocolates. And I thought, oh, what's this? And apparently it was from the soprano herself. She'd realised what she'd done. Because if there's anybody who would understand that, it would be another soprano. Well, you say understand, but you see, there are people that have never been in that position. They've never been an understudy. But it doesn't take a massive leap of imagination, though, does it? It doesn't, but some people are more selfish than others. You were a contestant on Britain's Got Talent. How did that happen? How did that come about? Oh, gosh. <laughs> oh, help. Um, it came about my friend Ian, the florist friend, he does a lot of flower demonstrations and he's got a passion for music, especially a musicals on opera. And sometimes he would theme his flower dems and he'd usually do six or seven different creations, each lasting about 15 minutes. And he used to use music. And sometimes he'd like to use live music. So I would go and sing some famous operarias or some classical songs, which sort of fitted in with the theme of his designs. And somebody had spotted him. And you see, Britain's Got Talent. It's not just people going and auditioning and saying, I want to be on it. They actually have talent scouts and they're out there. And sure. Ian got approached and he rang me up and I said, no, I didn't even know very much about Britain's Got Talent because I think it was the second season. I'm guessing he wanted you to sing with him and not just arrange the flowers with him. Yes, he wanted me to sing. Yes, I'm not very good at arranging flowers. And so basically I said no three times, but then to shut him up, I said, oh, I don't know why. I just said, okay, where is this blooming audition? And we went to the Lowry and the rest is history, as they say. So... (laughs) We queued up 
there was thousands of people there. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know how whether you, which word you want to use, basically one of the um, assistant producers was auditioning us. And he liked us. He said, oh, I think you've got something here. You're quirky. Now, <laughs> in hindsight, I'm thinking you're doing us to make a fool of us. I don't know anyway. So we got through to the next round. And then the next round was filmed in a theatre with a live audience but it wasn't live, you know what I mean? So it could be edited. Yes. Ian had had this special trolley thing built so we could go onto the stage with everything in the back of it, the flowers. All your compost, your flowers, your pots. Yeah, yeah. And how he was going to, what he was going to create. I was dressed in black. I was going to be singing Omiya Babino Caro from Puccini's one-act opera, Janis Kiki. And he was going to hopefully do a, an arrangement to reflect that. So we walked onto the stage and we had to introduce ourselves. And if I remember rightly, I think Ian was really nervous, bless him. And we had 20 seconds to do like an intro. And he said, I can't remember what exactly he said wrong, and but it broke the ice a bit. Anyway, we started. So the music started to play and I started to sing. And it's only a short aria, is uh, this aria. But within about the first 15, 20 seconds, I could hear the booing start. And it was getting so loud that, I couldn't hear the music oh. and I was looking over to Ian thinking, do I continue or do I stop? And then I was thinking, I know this isn't live, but I've got to be professional here. You can't burst into tears. You can't storm off stage. You can't swear. You can't do anything. You've just got to carry on. So I did. I carried on. And before we got to the end, Simon, it was only three people on the panel and Simon Cowell pressed his you know, X is red X. But because uh, Piers Morgan and um, Amanda Holden didn't, we had two out of three that liked us. And Piers actually, he, although I don't know what I really think of him, but he actually, at the time, he supported us and said that the audience and Simon Cowell were ignorant, more or less. You didn't actually use that word, but said, you know, I liked it. We got off stage. I was really upset, but obviously I didn't want to show it. And then we heard that we got through to the next round and the next round was... How did you feel when you heard you'd got through were you excited or did you think oh god do you know what how I felt I felt it was on a treadmill that I couldn't get off yeah I felt oh what have I done and we were had to go to London and then that's when we were told and there again this was filmed but it wasn't live so they could edit it that they put everybody into different groups and then they told them whether they'd got through yay or nay and we were put with all what I call the freak acts and I said to Ian right be prepared Game face on when we walk through those doors and we see Simon Carroll, etc. Don't show any emotion, just smile. And whatever they say to us, just take it on the chin. Yeah. And I was quite prepared for them to say, right, this is the end of the road. But of course, it wasn't. And we were put through to the live semi-finals and so we were put through to the final 40 so that year there was like seventy-five thousand people and we got down to the final 40 wow that is i mean it's a huge achievement actually well it is and it isn't because you know some of my fellow peers when they found out after we'd been on the live show the backlash was just huge what did they say to you how desperate i was how how foolish and then People like Terry Wogan, who's no longer here with us, but he on his show, he made fools of us. Um, He didn't name us by our Christian names, but he named us by our act, Floral High Notes. We were ridiculed on the Stephen Mulholm show. Oh, I can't remember his name, a comedian with glasses. He, you know, um, it wasn't very nice, basically. (laughs) I would have found that really traumatic. Yes, it was, but... (laughs) 
I made a stronger stuff. For the actual live semi-final show, I sang something that they didn't want me to sing, but they wanted us to do something stupid like the Country Garden song. And I said, no, I'm doing something that I can sing. So I actually sang Rural Britannia. And what Ian was trying to make, but they said they didn't get it. He was trying to make and represent the shield and he was making it out of flowers. Um, My husband, Clive, had come down because we were allowed five people each. And so my brother, bless him, he didn't want to be there, Ed. My two sisters, Becky and Vicky, and a good family friend, Fran. So they were representing me. And they said it was horrible in the audience, she said, because people were booing us. But she said, when we challenged them afterwards, they said, well, why were you booing? Oh, we we, were booing because, you know, we were told to boo. Not that we didn't think it was not it wasn't good you know any of these kind of reality shows it sounds like sour grapes of course coming from me but they have an agenda they know who they want to win they try and steer the audience and of course that year the person that they wanted to win didn't win she came second and diversity the dance group won but they actually wanted susan boyle to win and at the end of the root of all these things, the only people that come out with anything is um, the people that produce the programme, and they're the ones that make the money. And in hindsight, would I have done it? I probably wouldn't. But then the thing is with life, you can't really have any regrets because you don't know what it might have been. Not that it, what, what it might led to, but all right, so be it. So it was a chapter in my life, but, you know, I've moved on. Talking to her, it felt as if Helena's had some bad experience that have rocked her as if some of the people she's encountered haven't even noticed she's a person with thoughts and feelings. This, I think, is the hard truth about the entertainment business. Sometimes, to some people, you're just a body, there to do a job. No more than that. You're no longer a person. It sounds like in your career that you've had these experiences as an understudy and on Britain's Got Talent where you as an individual weren't valued. Yeah, and that's the hard thing. And then I could go on to say the stuff since 2009, because that year that's when I launched, well, well, I I say I, uh, my youngest sister, decided we, we formed our own little company called Little Bixie Productions. And that year we, Becky and my other sister, Vicky created a lovely family show, which we took to the Buxton Fringe Festival. And I, we also created a, an opera show called Operatastic, The Accessible Guide to Opera. And that was with, for me, and a tenor and an actor and a pianist. And we took that show to Buxton. And so Little Pixie was launched. And then since then, we've gone on to produce quite a few other shows. Becky's original, what became the Red Shoes show, a few years later, she wanted to redevelop the show. And we'd created a book. We self-produced the book. And we got Arts Council funding to tour that new version of the show. And then later that year, I worked with a fantastic couple, writer and composer, and we did our own production of The Snow Queen. And I acted as producer on that, and I got Arts Council funding, and we toured that. And then we toured it a couple of years later without funding, but still made it pay. We didn't profit a load of money, but we actually paid the actors and everyone, and the creators involved, the going rate, if you, you know what I mean. Sure. But there are peers don't value the fact that because you create it yourself – they don't think it's any good. But then I think, come on, Helena, all right, nobody knows who I am. I'm not famous. I've not made loads of money. But when I look back at what I've actually achieved, how many percent of the population can say, 
well, they worked for English National Opera in the chorus. They were there seven years. They were in 43 different operas. They've worked for other companies, created their own stuff, being a producer. So actually, I just have to pat myself on the back, really, and say, come on. And even if, you know, going forward, I find something else creative going in a different direction, I think I will sing again, but I'm going to have to create it myself. You have to be excited. You have to be hopeful. You have to have faith. You have to have hope, because otherwise... What else is there? All the show notes for this episode are available in the description, and there's a bunch more stuff at beforethebaropens.com. Before the Bar Opens is created by me, Emma Clark, and is produced by Rick Watson. I compose the theme music. If you'd like to leave us a voice message and maybe be featured in a future episode of Before the Bar Opens, check out the show notes and follow the Leave Us a Voice Message link. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, leave us a review, hopefully a lovely one, and tell your friends. Another episode will be along very soon, so don't miss it. Thanks for listening.